Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week, what we have for you is one of my favorite talks given by my comrade Jason Rink. It is called American Idol. He gave this talk back in 2014 at our Christians for Liberty conference, and what we're going to do is not just simply play you the talk, but we are going to do that, and we are going to give you a little bit of our commentary along the way. Jason has a lot to say about what he said in his talk, and so you'll be interested to hear a little bit of commentary from him, what he was thinking, maybe some of the risks he took in uh, being a little bit provocative. So we hope you enjoy this annotated version of our talks, and we'll see you on the other side. When I look at this idea of statism as a religion, um, I think some people think that that's a little bit strong, like that's going too far, like a religion, really. And so when we think about what a religion is, there's just a couple of definitions I want to pull out. The belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods, or a particular system of faith or worship. And so you might be able to think about, and Americans particularly, might look around the world and say, yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that some state worship has happened throughout history, but it doesn't really happen in America. Americans don't worship the state. And so I thought I would just lead us through a little visual history to see if maybe there's any state worship going on here. So let's just kind of kind of take a look here. So in America, we have our sacred symbols. The American flag. Uh, our sacred texts. Uh, the Constitution. Got our saints. Uh, Mount Rushmore. He's a big saint. And uh, the Lincoln Memorial. We've got our, our temples. Ah, uh, yes, the Congress building. Our denominations. Uh, we've got a our priest. donkey and an elephant on there. Priests uh, is Congress. Churches. churches are school buildings. <laughs> Thank you. Pastors. Pastors are teachers of public schools. We've got common prayer. Uh, the pre Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. We've got our uh, televangelists out there. Him too, by yeah, the way. So we got Rachel Maddow and Bill O'Reilly. Uh, there's tithes and offerings. The 1040 form for the not, IRS. Not quite so the tithes voluntary. And offerings to the state. Uh, we have our messiahs and revivals. So your messiahs and revivals are the candidate of the week, or whoever's the most popular candidate. Uh, we, we've, got, we've got church discipline. <laughs> when you stray from the gospel of the state, we have our crusades. Human sacrifice. Church discipline, crusades, and human sacrifice comes into the police state the military interventionism, and the uh, dead soldiers, of course. I mean, it's, it's got all of the trappings of, of, it's a broad tent that encompasses what exists in, in religions throughout the world. One thing I want to say about that sort of series of images and 
the different connections. One thing when I was giving this talk that I thought, I don't know, it was maybe unclear was that I was I was being a little bit loose with this idea of like um, religion and different things that are involved in like religion. So I was sort of taking I was being pretty loose with that that terminology and like what was included in that. So I wasn't um, necessarily talking about like a Christian religion and then worship of the state. I was sort of conflating all kinds of religions that have existed throughout time. So, you know, you get into like the human sacrifices and the crusades and we could get into a big conversation about how, you know, the crusades were not, uh, something that are in line with, you know, the Christian crusades, you know, quote unquote, Christian crusades are not in line with the teachings of Jesus and human sacrifices are, are clearly, uh, you know, like the pagan religions of, of old time or witchcraft or whatever. So, um, but I, I felt like, uh, when I was given this talk, I wasn't clear about that. And then it sort of was in the back of my mind the whole time. I was like, Oh, you know, religion defining that term, what does that mean? And, um, and, and just as a side note as well, I think in maybe evangelical circles or contemporary Christian circles, the word religion is almost like not a popular term, you know, it's like, um, I think a lot of like contemporary Christians try to delineate what what they're doing, you know, following Jesus isn't a religion, it's a relationship or whatever. And so even within like Christianity, this idea of, you know, are we engaging in a religion or not? And all of that is just, it's just like, um, I guess I just felt like the word itself was a little bit like open to uh, interpretation. And I wanted to make sure that people understood, you know, I wasn't insinuating that uh, uh, the religion of state necessarily parallels exactly with uh, the Christian religion, but just religion in general, as that has been demonstrated throughout history. I'm not sure many people would feel too misled by any of that. You talked about that we're inclined to worship something, and religion is sort of a a manifestation of a group of people worshiping in, in a certain direction, if you will. Um, and I don't think you in any way made it so that like Christianity was off the hook for its own you know, history where, where we're culpable for, for, for evil. Yeah. Well, you know, this is probably just an example of where I would overthink something that I would say, you know, I am very, uh, something that runs my life is that I don't want to be misunderstood. So I tend to over explain myself because I want to make sure nobody misunderstands anything that I'm saying. That's also makes me on a lot too. So yeah, that same it also disease. makes me not want to speak in public very much anymore about <laughs> controversial ideas, <laughs> which is why I'm not on the podcast very much these days. But anyway, <laughs> is there anything yeah. that you would add to this, Jason? Now that I mean, this was uh, 2014, so we're hitting almost three years ago, and I know you've given this before, you know, since then, and and things. But would you add anything? Yeah, you know, I probably feel more strongly that the state as a competing religion or um, the state as a competitor for the allegiance of the Christian heart is even 
it's even a more serious problem than when I gave this. I feel like, though it's hard to believe, I feel like uh, everybody has dug their heels in more when it comes to partisan politics and the role of the state. And even in the midst of Trump, and you're seeing like um, some people on the left who are now saying, oh, maybe we should um, go more to federalism and states' rights so we can, you know, not, so Trump can't do bad things. That's even a really dishonest sentiment in my mind because it's just that, it just highlights the fact that really, um, partisans really just want the ability to control and do things their way. And I think people are even more um, digging their heels in on this idea of like God's on our side. Like, I, I think we see it in uh, Christian conservatives a lot with the election of Trump. And then I think, you know, on the left, just the, the same usual suspects who... Um, you know, will are opposing uh, the Republican agenda or whatever the conservative Christian agenda. Um, you know, with the social welfare Christians, I think again everybody's just more looking uh, to the state for answers. So yeah, uh, that's all I would do is I would underline that I think it's even a bigger problem now. What I think's worth briefly mentioning here as well. I mean, it, back in 2014 when this originally happened, I don't think any of us really knew. Uh, or even had heard of perhaps of Rene Girard and mimetic theory. Um, but one thing that I think has kind of come into focus for me over the, over the last couple of years is how mimetic theory, Rene Girard's thinking and whatnot, really does explain how and why the origin of the state as a kind of religious observance in many respects which includes the aspects of human sacrifice, uh, how that makes sense and how it came into being. Uh, and we'll, we'll make sure and link to David Gronoski's talk in our show notes here. But I think it's, it's really interesting because when we see these aspects of the state that appear to be developing more and more this, this kind of religious aspect to it, or, or it comes into focus as we learn more about it, it becomes more explained uh, through things like that. So I, I would definitely encourage our listeners here to take a look at Rene Girard and his works, uh, look at David Gronoski's uh, articles and his uh, videos on the topic. We'll make sure and link to a couple of those. It's worth talking about. I hope you get to check it out at some point. I believe that one of the issues that we have in, in trying to enter this discussion is understanding that many people... Uh, are unaware of the kind of allegiance and the way that they look to the state as a replacement for, for God. And, and I, I think that we are crafted to worship. I think that's how we're designed. And, and I say this from the standpoint that I believe when, when you bottom line it with most people, there is something that they do worship. Now, whether that's just self and their own self-interest or a government or a god, a deity, um, all sorts of different things we can worship. But, but I believe you can look throughout human history and see that humans exhibit a tendency towards worship. And so I believe that, that government, and, and I'm speaking of government as a very like generic term, but government itself seeks to 
embody and replace some of the characteristics of God and take them on for themselves. So I just want to walk through this. So I make this statement about government seeks to replace God, and it gets a little sticky here because, you know, government is really made up of individuals who uh, make up this, you know, organization, this bureaucracy, this force, uh, this collective. And so I think it's worth noting that I don't know from an individual level that there are representatives or that there would be a, a, a significant number of individuals uh, throughout government who would have some sense that what they're doing is replacing God or what have you. But I think there's this sense of how the nature of government is, which is that it's individuals coming together and exercising like power for the greater good or trying to accomplish something for the greater good, thinking that they're doing some service for society or for America or for the people. And to the degree that that exists, there is a dimension of that that is, um, it is godlike. And the fact that individuals, when they're engaged in the work of government, can, there's a, there's a phenomenon where individuals are absolved of responsibility for what they're actually doing because they're part of this larger whole. So government's this large, massive thing that does all this stuff, and everybody are just, they're just these cogs in the wheel, and yet um, here's government moving, um, doing these things, accomplishing these things, interfering in these things. Um, so, I don't know, I just feel like there's a, there's a sense by which um, I would personalize government and say that government as an entity does seek to replace the attributes of, or take on the attributes of God and then carry out the work that would be attributed to God. And yet, from an individual level, the individuals within government, I don't know that they would share that uh, sentiment. And so that is an interesting dynamic for me. And, and maybe what I'll what I would say is that it's interesting to me that there's something that takes place in the collective workings of government, in that individuals may not have this thought or sense that they are embodying the attributes of God to carry out the work of God in the place of God as a government agent, but altogether, the impact that they have as a collective, government employees and bureaucrats and legislation and all of this stuff, it takes on a life of its own and a godlike uh, power of its own, um, which I think is interesting. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is the fact that the state as an institution somehow takes on a life of its own outside the individual members that comprise, you know, its bureaucracy and organization and things like that. So, yeah, there's a sense in which it, because it takes on a life of its own, I mean, I don't know, it's, it, in some ways I can say, well, it's not really that surprising that that would happen because you're, you're giving an institution a monopoly on the use of force. 
And so what else would you expect for that to just really go downhill? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose. And I think what I think what occurs to me is just that the some of the parts of government can be more powerful and have a, a, a greater impact and that that impact may be beyond what um, the the parts might might be after, you know, like I think government is primarily made up of a bunch of people who just want jobs. Like, I, I don't think there's a I don't think that the driving force behind most people who are bureaucrats is like we're changing right. the world. Right. And not everybody making, is a Frank Underwood. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or, or even like altruistic or anything. Because, you know, there's like people in government who like who really think Clean the floor amazing, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like it's this really wonderful thing. And and, you know, it's like but. I think the people who make up the TSA are just a bunch of people who want jobs primarily. Like, you know, so, and yet um, they have this collectively, the TSA has this awesome godlike power of, you know, um, invading our privacy, <laughs> you know, they nothing omnis- being <laughs> out of its view, you know, so. But isn't it um, interesting how, like, this is the banality of evil at work when it comes down to it. Yeah. It's, it is these small things that add up over time, over long periods, that just it just kind of it's creeping evil, if you will. <laughs> this is I, I can't remember. I, I know people have talked about this in the libertarian movement before, and it I, doesn't occur to me off the top of my head who does. But they, you even heard to hear about it. It's called the, the banality of evil and how yeah, that's things, a great term for it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I thought it was just it was great, and I've never really forgotten it. But it's this idea that you know, like like you said, a lot of these people don't individually feel like they're doing much, and maybe they're not contributing very much to the to the force of uh, of you know the state that is pr- that is slowly but surely progressing. But as you add more and more and more to it, it just adds up over time and again and again until you have the TSA and the NSA and the bureaucratic behemoth, the deep state, if you will. That's actually, you know, in many respects, it's the worser problem than uh, elected representatives at times. Because at least the elected representatives, you know, they can they, their hand is stilled for a little while while they're you know trying to get reelected or something to that effect. But the but the bureaucratic mechanism it never dies. It never wants to go away. It never stills its hand. I think that's why there's an a perennial value to the libertarian critique of the state is that it's this it's this engine that runs behind it, and we kind of intuitively know that it doesn't matter who's the conductor. This thing's just going to keep going. And it's it's a lot more than just, quote-unquote, electing the right people to, to deal with it. This is probably not going to be the deepest exploration here that you're going to get today of, of these ideas, but uh, here's some ways that I think that the state in America seeks to embody and replace the attributes of God. So the state is good and just and holy. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm going to play a little bit with a couple of, of verses. Uh, Psalm 31:19. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for all them that fear thee. Psalm 145:17. The state is righteous in all its ways and holy in all its works. Um, Romans 7:12. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And this idea that 
the state is this good and benevolent and fair organization. It's a public service full of well-intentioned people who only want to make the world a better place, that the courts of law can be trusted and seen as legitimate venues to resolve disputes with one another and have no ulterior motive. Specifically, when we, you know, Mike was just talking about states' rights, that you know, the federal courts are, are somehow representative of we the people, not the federal government and the interests of the federal government. So this point specifically um, starts to get at something that libertarians have have talked about for a long time, which is this idea that the public and the people, well, we're really just not, you know, to be trusted and we're not responsible enough to take care of ourselves and have these, you know, voluntary associations and self-regulation and all these things. So what we need to do is we need to elect people or select people or put people into places of power who represent us and then Somehow, by being placed into those positions of power, these individuals who, when they were just part of the public, you know, all of us were just a bunch of idiots who can't self-regulate and, you know, deal with our own problems in any way. Once they get into government, somehow they become holy and righteous and just in all of their ways. And somehow, by entering into the halls of government, you now become part of this sort of priest class of individuals who can adjudicate and administrate over the people righteously and well. And that just doesn't make any sense once you just think about it. Um, in fact, the opposite, I think, is true once you think about it. Because if if the people are incompetent or not able to self-regulate or, you know, take care of our own problems or, you know, whatever, anything that we would, we would desire from the standpoint of like limited government or no government. Right. Um, when you start talking about the types of individuals who would want to be in government, who would want to be in the halls of power, it attracts exactly the kind of people who wouldn't be holy and just and righteous. In fact, you know, government attracts the exact kind of people who once put in those those positions of power would use it unrighteously. And they're not really any more qualified in the ways of like intelligence or wisdom or anything like that. Um, most people who run for office and are successful are actually just better at running for office. And running for office is a series of um, skills that would have more to do with, um, you know, maybe marketing or um, self-promotion or all of these other things. So anyway, I just think this this argument that the state in and of itself is holy and just or, you know, righteous in some way and can be trusted in these matters um, just overlooks this, this human flaw um, that exists in people that is used to justify why we need government to begin with. I would venture to guess that most Christians, I can't speak for non-Christians, I would say most Christians sort of revere the institution of government because of a misinterpretation or the, you know, the perennial 
Romans 13 remark that, you know, God ordained government to do all these wonderful things or to to, to administer justice and things like that. My guess is that the people on the right are going to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, maybe if someone gets in government, you know, they're just going to take it seriously. They, they revere, they, you know, once they're in, in office or because they're aspiring to be in office, they'll see it as sort of a sacred calling and they'll take it more seriously and therefore, you know, whatever bad motivations they may have or, the, you know, kind of the their faults will just kind of not be so prominent. Whereas, you know, we, of course, look at that and say, well, pff, yeah, right. Like, it's just going to be amplified uh, instead of instead of mitigated. Something else your talk made me think of is I'm really baffled by those on the left who will scoff at the idea that corporations are people, too. Mitt Romney said that back when he was running and, you know, it just went rampant that he was an idiot for saying something like corporations are people too. Yet somehow the government is, is made up of the people. I don't really get the fact that they can see that there's, there's not really, I mean, in terms of institutionally, there's not a huge difference. Does that make sense? The analogy I'm comparing? Well, it, it, it gets into this idea that um, corporations in the marketplace, so, um, you know, capitalist corporations, you know, business corporations are somehow different than government corporations, you know, and really they're, they are different, but they're different in ways that those who have misplaced trust in government uh, aren't willing to recognize, which is that it's, it's government as an organization and as a corporation that actually, um, in the collective sense, when we're really talking about the machinery, is not accountable to any market forces or competitors. Um, it's uh, open up to being captured by the exact businesses that um, those people would rail against. So they they like to talk about how terrible um corporations are when they're talking about businesses and how they're, you know, they're buying out politics and that they're having undue influence over it. And it's like, yeah, well, that political system is there to be bought. And so the difference is, is that what you're touching on that I think is just significant and that I don't think people who typically are on the left who have this sense around government, um, being more trustworthy somehow for the public good is this idea that that government doesn't really have a competitor. Even though representatives might, government itself does not have a competitor. And therefore, uh, it can get away with a lot more and can be more corrupt and can be more under the control of moneyed interests or whatever um, than actual businesses, which actually have to answer to um, different competitive forces. Yeah, the closest thing to a competitor is a challenger for the incumbent every two, four, or six years, which is pretty slow feedback loop. The idea that mediation and issues of person or property could ever be handled in a competitive free market of services is, is inconceivable. Uh, we place confidence in the justice system such that we are comfortable with the state not only as judge but as executioner. And no matter how absurd laws may be, that they are to be obeyed at all costs. So I think these are attributes that people have. These are things that people think about our government as truths that, that 
are embodiments of, of God. I, I believe some people look at the state as eternal. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's as if they believe John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the state, and the state was with God, and the state was God. But the concept that the state has always existed and will always exist. So the idea that we could move towards a voluntary or stateless society is inconceivable. It's not even worth discussing. And I'm, I'm not here to decide whether or not that's true. But that, that is on the table. People say, who will build the roads? Who, who will protect us from our foreign enemies? And, and most people don't understand what the world could possibly look like if, if the state in its current form were eliminated or drastically reduced. There's even the saying, right? What are the two certainties in life? Death and taxes. Taxes require a state, you know? So again, even that phrase is sort of a godlike essence to this, right? The state is omnipotent. Um, Romans 1.18, the wrath of the state is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. I uh, actually spent some time in Amsterdam um, working with a company called Holacracy. And it's a company run by a guy named Brian Robertson, who is a libertarian. And the company, what it does is they work with businesses to help them transition from a hierarchical management uh, structure to a more flat management structure or a peer-to-peer -peer management structure. And what's interesting is there's a lot interesting about what this company's doing. But they tend to be working with very forward-thinking, tech-oriented companies. They, worked with they work with Zappos, which was one of the you know, um, big tech companies, uh, the shoe company out of Nevada. Um, they've worked with a lot of other companies. And what they are seeing is that um, industrial age management structures, the hierarchical management corporate structure is insufficient to, so it's not able to harness and deal with feedback um, from within a corporate, um, an organization. It's not able to harness the creativity. It's um, not able to um, deal with sort of the speed and agility that companies in, in the, in this, you know, the 21st century, um, you know, require. And there's really an underlying philosophy that the way that management used to work was maybe great for a time and maybe worked and maybe it was optimal. And that that time has just passed and it's been gone for a while. And only now are people really waking up to this. And I think there's a parallel. I think if you look at sort of what is um, unfolded over the course of history around what the state is and what government is and its role in how human beings organize society. And then you start looking at some of the different things that have occurred in the, in the realm of technology and communication um, and instantaneous feedback, all of these different things that are happening in our world, you can start to see where there's maybe an opening to consider, hold on, maybe government as we know it is 
no longer sufficient. And if you see government as like this operating system uh, that we've used to organize society for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, and that that has changed over time um, and has is, is moved through phases, and, and that maybe there's a very radical change that, that could be adopted now because of certain tools that are available to us in technology and in communication that weren't available in the past. I think that's an interesting thought. And so what I'm talking about here on this idea of, of government being eternal and people not being able to think about what the world would be like without government as we know it, um, I think it might be helpful for us to really, really consider that. And, and it's one of those places where God, who says, you know, he will never change and God will always be around. It's one of those places where government falls short of um, being God, uh, really specifically in that way, is that, you know what, government may become obsolete and maybe in the process of becoming obsolete right now. And with people, Matthew 19:26, with people this is impossible, with the state all things are possible. Again, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of, I'm just trying to shoehorn this idea into scripture and see how this parallels, right? So, you know, when we look at the state is all powerful and the state is willing to demonstrate that power when necessary. The state and the wrath of the state is unleashed against those who are unbelievers in its ways, right? And we've been freeing people for democracy around the world for decades through the use of large military force. You know, many people also believe that the state is the only uh, entity that is worthy or responsible enough to handle weapons of any sort. And I also find it funny, too, when people talk about the United States in particular, and it's like, well, we've got to make sure Iran doesn't have any nuclear weapons. Because the, the United States, we're the good guys in all of this thing. And it's like, wait, who's used the nuclear weapons in history? You know, like, we don't look, you know, so good in that, in that arena. Um, so the state is, is all powerful, able to annihilate entire cities or people. Um, and now with precision accuracy with a drone, without due process. So... The state is omniscient and omnipresent. Second uh, Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the state run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show itself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward it. In Psalm 139.7.8, Where shall I go from your, from your spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. It's like, if you didn't know that was a Bible verse, you'd think I was talking about the NSA, right? <laughs> and so the state is this thing that knows all, that sees all, that hears all. But why do you have a problem with that? What do you got to hide, right? So... You know, the, the state is everywhere. The state is in our homes. The state is involved in our food, in our families, our children's educations, our bedrooms. All of these places are the purview of the state. Where on, where you stand is holy ground. Take off your shoes. That is the state's domain. 
And so the state is omnipresent and omniscient. The state is provider. The state shall supply all your need according to its riches and glory. And we have been in this nation that there's been this slow, crazy process through which, you know, social programs and entitlements and the social welfare state has grown and expanded and has reached into so many areas of life. And in the process of that, the church has been crowded out. And so, you know, sometimes people ask, well, what if we got rid of the social welfare state, you know? Uh, what would we do? And, and the response is, well, we'd let people die in the streets like they did before. <laughs> Which didn't happen. That's not what happened before the New Deal. Okay? I mean, before this all began, there were people and organizations and charitable groups who helped mankind. We had a different uh, sense of community back then, too. I believe that the breakdown of the community in the United States is a big, big problem. It's not a problem that we have to somehow legislate to solve. I'm just saying it's, it's an issue that has changed how we interact with people. And so we, many of us live in neighborhoods and in cities where we barely know the people that we are around. And so the idea that we would help others out and do things for others through our own sense of charity and through our own sense of responsibility um, and I believe this thing is true for the church. And I believe many people now say, why would I give? That's what I pay my taxes for. And yet, that is the most impersonal way that care can be given in this society. Facelessly, administratively, bureaucratically. And so the state as provider um, has been a, a way that not only has it been detrimental but it has removed the opportunity for people who are helped out to be directed toward the church and the people of God. Because the state truly is their provider. It didn't come from a voluntary, caring community of people that they know who have been changed by the gospel and have, have shared out of their own resources to help those in need. And I think that could also speak to why we have seen a major decline in, in people being receptive to the gospel and to the church and the work the church does. Something that occurs to me on this provider idea, and you know, I get at it here in this talk, but you know, the state has replaced God, and to the degree that the church was to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ moving on the earth, uh, changing people's lives, uh, helping the poor, all of these different things. The fact of the matter is, is in this, in this in instance of provider, I think the state really has replaced the church in a lot of ways. Like, I think the state is seen as the um, the entity that does help the poor. I think that's how people see it. I don't think people in American society typically think, "Oh yeah, the church. That's that. Those are the people that are helping the poor." Um, so 
I, I guess my point is, I think there are places along this whole argument where the state has successfully dethroned God in the minds of people as being the organization or entity that does accomplish these things. And not just in society at large, but in the church. Uh, there was a previous point about, you know, protection. Um, you know, the war powers and the surveillance powers of the state, you know, tend to be accepted by and large, you know, by conservatives specifically, but overall uh, by people in the church. The idea that, you know, we are kept safe by the state, and yet really, I think God would tell us as Christians, like, hey, what are you afraid of, guys? Like, um, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me, and, you know, I take care of my entire creation, and you're my children, and so I don't know what you're anxious about. So, you know, the church is is hanging out. Um, we're all anxious and scared and fearful about all of the different ways that we can be harmed or injured or killed and look to the state as being this great protector and um, keeping us safe. And it's and again, I just think it's it's evident that in the hearts of Christians in the United States, like, you know, the state has dethroned God in that area. So in the area of protector and provider, I think that it is, I, I think it's hard to argue that that hasn't happened, not only in society, but in a lot of Christians. Well, I think what you said is absolutely true. I also want to add that I don't think this is an either or where it's the government that takes care of those who are in need and is a provider or a healer versus the church or other you know religious organizations. We also have to remember that capitalism has been the biggest anti-poverty move in all of history. And I think it's incumbent upon the church to promote institutions, or I hate to call capitalism a system, for lack of a better word, to promote things like capitalism that will improve the lot of the poor. And, you know, at some point, if the government stops creating or keeping people in poverty through anti-immigration reform or stupid regulations like licensing laws and things like that, I think it would be a much more, like, I think it would be a much easier job for the church to envision, oh, we can we can handle this, because there's so much less of it if the government could get out of the way. And I realize that's... No, you bring up a great point when you bring up the point of capitalism and, you know, how, you know, the facts are that it isn't um, any welfare program or nonprofit um, that has had the greatest impact on elevating the livelihood and the standard of living for the greatest number of people worldwide. Like, it's the market. It's capitalism. And that's just true. And um, again, you know, I think um, that's just a, that's just a, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great point. It's a great reminder. It's like not either or here, like capitalism actually trumps kind of all of that. And it makes all of the giving possible that I would give anyway. It's coming from the gains that I'm making in this wonderful marketplace. We're also talking about slightly different idea of poverty. Now, I realize we're, we live in the U.S., the three of us, and the kinds of 
poor people that we may run into and rub shoulders with are not in any way the same as you know real poverty and destitution around the world. So I don't want to minimize the varying levels of poverty. What I want to point out, though, is that we are dealing with, in terms of the you know U.S. leftist social justice warriors who say the state needs to take care of the people who you know don't have jobs. And what I want to say is that we're talking about a different kind of poverty. And what we're dealing with in the U.S. when we deal with progressives talking about how horrible capitalism is, and look at the there's there's people who don't have health care. And, you know, this is a bad system. We're dealing with the people who have yet to be affected by the most rapid prosperity driving machine in history, if, to put it that way. So we're not dealing with like, oh, it's too bad that they're poor and we just haven't figured out a way to do it. It's just like they're just the last to be touched significantly by it through the course of history. And I'm not saying that that doesn't mean there's no suffering. And to be sure, we are responsible as fellow human beings to find a way to peacefully help help those who are in need but it's really kind of forgetting the long the long timeline of history and the fact that we've had huge gains in the past several hundred years the state is healer will provide for your health and well-being you know right now you know it's very popular to be critical of the affordable care act or obamacare um, and, and many conservatives are, and, and you've got a right to be critical of it, don't get me wrong, but they fail to realize that Medicare Part D under Bush was the largest federal expansion of an intervention in healthcare in history. So it's just been a series of one-upping this thing. And those of us who believe in free markets um, and that markets have the ability to expand access and lower cost in every area that has been allowed to function. We look around and see the areas in which costs have continued to grow and grow and skyrocket. We look at those areas, we say, what does it have in common? University, healthcare, all these different things. It's the hand of government. It's the hand of intervention and regulation that is often what is preventing people from being able to uh, have access to these things. It's true in the entire area of wealth, welfare. You know the. The organization that claims to want to help the least of these the most, the state and those who promote it, are actually hurting and hindering the, those people from actually having fulfilling lives and well-being. And so the state is healer. The state is also immutable, unchanging. And you know, it, it's interesting because uh, the Supreme Court you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. This, the Hobby Lobby decision came down, right? And that was like this big deal and everybody was like divided on this issue. And there was even, I heard, you know, the Democrats were like, well, we're gonna draft something to overturn that ruling. And I was like, great. Why don't you overturn Gonzalez versus Raich, uh, which was the decision that made you know, California's legal marijuana officially against the law and Wickard versus Filburn, which was the ruling back in the 40s that it was illegal to grow wheat in opposition to the state on your own property. Like, it, it, it's like, sure, let's just overturn these decisions. These are not immutable. Just because the Supreme Court says something is constitutional doesn't mean it is, doesn't mean it's right. 
And uh, I'm not specifically speaking about the Hobby Lobby decision, whether or not that was right or wrong. I'm just saying we, people go forward and they're like, we have this history of ex-cathedra communication from the Supreme Court. And that is the final saying on the issue. Nine judges in dresses who are appointed, you know. And the reason everybody wants to control, you know, the presidency and the House and Senate it, all the time they're like, well, we're going to get to appoint some new Supreme Court judges and that way they'll make decisions that we like and the other team doesn't. And that's the way it's seen. It's like that our entire federal system and that our constitutional system was set up in such a way that at the end of the day, nine dudes or women get to decide it. That was not the way that it was designed, but the federal government and the state believes that it is immutable and many people see the work of the government and the sayings as immutable. And so I kind of want to close on this because I started by saying, well, by saying that statism is a religion, am I going too far? And then by saying that in America, statism is a religion, am I going too far? And I tried to show that maybe this was accurate representation of what's going on. But the real question is, is the religion of statism an idol poised in the middle of the church in America? Does the church in America have an unholy allegiance to the state? Because of a misunderstanding of certain dimensions of scripture, because of the hijacking of scripture by politicians, because of the uh, narrow-minded um, viewpoints on certain issues um, that they don't see in the larger context of freedom and liberty and individual choice. Um, I don't know if any of you have been to a church service on Veterans Day or the 4th of July recently, uh, but sometimes it looks like an American flag exploded <laughs> in the sanctuary. And I don't know. I, I, I want to challenge Christians to ask ourselves whether we should say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, we definitely shouldn't say indivisible, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, uh, that's a different topic. But, the, you know, what are the things that we do as Christians out of a sense of, of national pride that culturally it's been communicated that this is how we are to conduct ourselves. And at what point do we start talking about issues such as foreign policy and military intervention and even talking to those Christians who are engaged in the military and, and gently, not abrasively in my estimation, Talk to them about how does this fit into the Christian philosophy of nonviolence? How does this how how does this fit when it comes to God's eternal plan and our understanding about the souls of men who are murdered for the cause of empire? These things are conversations I think we need to have. I, I don't think we need to get people to agree with me. But I think we need to talk about it. I think in the church, the question of how much and how do we honor veterans, and is it biblical, 
That, that's an open question. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't have, but I'm saying what's the manner? And us taking time to look through our own lives and say, what are the areas in which I have placed the state on a pedestal that it does not deserve to be on? And how revolutionary to the power structure was the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what does that need to look like for us? So with that, I'm going to end. And if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer those. Jason's concluding point here is to ask whether or not the church has assumed a new position for the state in place of God in various areas of where we think and behave. I believe very strongly and have since, you know, I've, since I started libertarianchristians.com so many years ago, that this is a problem in the church today, that we do tend to elevate the state to a level of, if not, if not worship itself, then so close to it, it is almost, uh, it, it is so close to be, you know, my, it may as well be the case. I am convinced that this is something that we do need to fight for. Obviously, that's why we're here today. That's why we, we're putting this material out for you. But in what ways can we you know, continue to fight for that and, and sort of uh, roll this back, if you will? A major part of this is not just... It, it, well, okay, let's just say there's two parts to it. One is it's exactly what... what uh, what Jason has been talking about the whole time, exposing the truth, exposing the state for what it is, that it is trying to replace God. But the other thing I think we should at least, you know, we should not fail to mention is that we have to focus on who the real truth is, and that is elevate Jesus back up to where he needs to be, to, to where we have absolute conviction when we can say we have no king but King Jesus, and we have no king but God the Father, uh, and that we understand God's place as, as central to our lives. If we don't do that as well, then, we're, then we may as well be lost anyway. Uh, so, I think that's, that's something to kind of, you know, it's a good way to, sort of, to conclude here as well, that when we can retool our focus away from uh, looking to the state for our provider, as a, as away from the state as our protection, away from the state as the, as the arbiter of all conflicts, and that it needs to be the one that we look to for advice and support and provision. And we instead retool that focus to God, we'll be in a much better position overall to explain even the negative aspects of the state to people. You know, I think this last point that I'm making here is really the most important in that my concern is where the church falls into this whole thing. Because, you know, people who are not Christians, they're going to worship something, and it's not going to be Christ. And the state, honestly, is a pretty awesome thing to worship uh, for people who've never been, um, never encountered Jesus in all of his awesomeness and majesty. And so, I am pointing out that people tend to worship the state, and the state has become a, an object of religious worship and devotion from people who would otherwise claim to be non-religious people uh, by the way that they act and by the way that they seek to have the state embody these attributes of God 
in their lives. But that's not my main concern. My main concern is waking Christians up to understand that they have moved the state in and that the state occupies a place of worship that it shouldn't have in their hearts and their lives to the degree that they look uh, to the state to provide and embody um, these attributes of God that I've delineated here. So again, the message is to the church, and it's to the church that I'm most concerned about getting this right, um, because the other aspect of this is that I think the some of the greatest damage that's been done to the gospel and to the ability for us as the people of God to influence people um, toward Christ, for us to be able to get them to understand who he is, I think um, the degree to which the state and the church and Jesus and politics has all been rolled up into this big mess, I think that has really hindered the gospel. And so um, I think it's something that we as Christians need to really deal with and recognize that it's been a hindrance to the mission. So we hope you like this annotated version of the Libertarian Christian podcast because we are kind of experimenting here a little bit. We'd like to hear some feedback from you, and if you want to tell us what you think, you can send us an email at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.